Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Dr. Kelly Fraden is a pediatrician in New York City. She shares calm, realistic, and evidence-based parenting tips on her very popular Instagram account, Advice I Give My Friends. And Kelly wrote Parenting in a Pandemic, a book to support families during the COVID pandemic. As a mother of a three-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old son, she has spent a lot of time thinking about how to talk to younger children about their bodies productively to foster healthy habits and positive self-esteem. We are so happy to welcome you, Kelly, to the Puberty Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I love um, your podcast and what you're doing to normalize conversations about such a tricky time for many children. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to meet you. Today, we are specifically going to talk about how do we raise younger children talking to them about their bodies. And Kelly, we're going to ask you some questions both because you are the parent of younger kids. I mean, my youngest is 11, Cara's youngest is 16, um, your youngest is three. So partially because you are a parent and partially because you are a pediatrician and partially because the content you put out in, on Instagram, it accomplishes all of the things you mentioned, which is it's, it's relatable, it's evidence-based, it's non-judgmental, but it is, you're a straight shooter. And so that's really important when we talk about kids' bodies, 
how to talk to kids about their bodies and how to address puberty. So we want to ask sort of a simple question, but it's actually complicated. And a lot of people have different perspectives on it, which is, is it ever too early to talk to kids about their bodies and to use anatomically correct terminology for people's bodies? I think it's best practice to just use the correct terminology from the beginning. I think there's no reason not to, you know, some nicknames for private parts, I think have a way of making it so child-friendly that uh, it becomes like a toy or a game or something. Like some of the nicknames I hear people using for their private parts are like, like they, they're disorienting to me. I don't know why you would want to, um, to make it so cutesy the names for private parts. We could do 45 minutes on the names for private parts, Vanessa, but we won't do that either. But it's an unbelievable list. That is an episode. And I can't believe people don't think the word vulva is cute. I mean, that, you know, that could be considered cutesy, I guess, if we all were socialized differently. Oh, Vanessa, (laughs) that's so, that's so JV. (laughs) Um, So Kelly, you hear people using, you're sitting with a family And you're trying to get at maybe a child has some, you know, it stings when she pees, right? Let's use an example. And the parent uses a cutesy euphemism for the child's body part. What do you, how do you handle that? What do you do? Here, we can role play it. Vanessa, ready? (laughs) Okay. Vanessa, does your yoo-hoo hurt? My yoo-hoo, is that the same thing as my mush-mush? I'm not sure. It's next to your mush-mush and it's behind your hoo-ha. Oh. Remember the yoo-hoo. I can't remember which thing hurts now. So Kelly, what do you do? You're like sitting there and you don't want to like embarrass the parent and you want to treat, take care of the kid. And you're like, I don't know what these people are even talking about. Cause there's a euphemism <laughs> for like every inch of their bodies. So what do you do in that, in that situation? You know, I think, I think you kind of cut through it and you say, you know, since I'm your doctor and I'm here to help you, why don't you show me what you're talking about? And we can go from there. And you can, you know, for little kids, I'll say like, take one finger and point to where you're feeling pain. And, and then I'll, you know, during the exam, I'll say, oh, I see you're pointing to this body part and um, let's get you covered up. And then we'll talk about what that might mean. And, and then you can talk about, what you see and what's normal and what's not. And, and you do have to often ask people because right, right along the, all the parts with cutesy names, people seem to have cutesy strategies for cleaning them. So often I find that I have, you have to ask and leave room because you'd be surprised people use specialized products that aren't really necessary that sometimes cause more harm than good. You know, for little, little, little girls, it's more often the bubble bath dermatitis, you know, the bubble bath dermatitis that you get from having a lot of bubbles around the vulva. But for older girls, all sorts of like specialized fruity washes and stuff that can just do as much harm as good. So if you don't ask about those things, sometimes they won't tell you because it's not medical in the parent's mind, but we have, we have to like leave space in the conversation conversation to know what's happening. Generally it's 
less is more, you know, the, these private parts, like whether it's an uncircumcised penis or vulva, or, you, you know, whether it's your ears, like they're self-cleaning body parts. So you don't need to go crazy getting in there and, and getting things out or, or changing the way that it looks by cleaning deeply. Uh, and in general, those techniques do more harm than good. So I say just kind of a mild soap and a washcloth around the outside and then just be done with it. Yeah. And I want to agree hundred percent. And by mild, usually it's a euphemism for no color, no perfume, no nothing in there. It's, it's really a very clean soap. But can we roll back to nicknames for a second? Because I, I think it's important to recognize why people don't use the anatomical words. And let's start with the people who are listening to this podcast, because that's who it starts with. It starts with the parents teaching the language to the kids. And it comes from a very well-intended place. So parents who have given nicknames to body parts are often trying to accomplish one or more of the following things. First of all, they're trying to open lines of communication with their kids, right? And this is an easy way in when you make light of it. The second is, and I think this is a huge one, they don't want their kids to get in trouble for using language that when they were growing up was bad language. And so what's the safest way to have a conversation with your kid about a private body part, but not have your kid take that language to school or on the school bus or to the park or whatever? Let's come up with a code word and then you're never going to get in trouble for the code word. And it's our code word. And then the third is in today's culture, I think people feel like it's a safety mechanism. Like it's our secret code word. So you can always talk to me about that secret code word and the world won't necessarily know. And whether it's, and there are probably other explanations too, but it comes from a, it comes from a place of genuine love and care for kids. It doesn't come from a place of trying to confuse kids. So I think to that end, it's why a lot of pediatricians keep a list of these words in their office. It's like mildly amusing and also a little bit of an anthropological study through what people do to try to communicate around something that can be talked about using really clear language. That's not bad. Vulva is not a bad word. Penis is not a bad word, but it's really hard for some parents to get beyond that. And I think it also reflects that many families have multiple generations involved. So sometimes maybe it's led by the grandparent or the caregiver who is a little bit older than the parents who, who kind of brings that language into the child's vocabulary. So it's not always even intentional on the part of the parents, but once the kids learn the words, it does tend to stick. Kelly, do you model for parents, like when you're in those situations, do you use the anatomically correct? Because in when we run our puberty workshops, I often find a lot of adults actually don't know all the anatomical vocabulary. And it's not, as Cara says, it's not their intention to do harm or to, you know, give misinformation, but often they weren't taught and they don't themselves know. And they're often really grateful when someone is is super clear about what it is. So is that something that you found successful in your own work? Yes. You know, I think it's, it's part of the reason that I like to, you know, examine the privates of children at every well child visit, because it gives you an opportunity to review what you're seeing and what it's called and what's normal and to talk about the care. Because, you know, I think circumcision is such a polarizing topic. I don't really want to go there, but I would say that a lot of the problems 
that come up from uncircumcised fetuses are like the forceful retraction of the tissue and, and the overcleaning of the tissue that can lead to sometimes narrowing of that area. But when, when we talk about it in a preventive health way, you know, we say like, you know, often, you know, families have it in their head that they have to do things a certain way. And if we don't talk about it, then how are they supposed to know otherwise? So I find it very helpful to, to discuss it. And I think you're absolutely right that many adults don't know the proper names for all the pieces of, of anatomy down there. And it's helpful, but it's also, um, you know, it's just one part of the body. So I I don't focus on it that much. It just, you know, to be thorough, we examine you from your head to your toes and we we talk about the whole body. So we try not to, to make it awkward by putting undue emphasis on it. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, 
B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Okay, I get this question all the time. I'm very excited to pass it to you. What's off limits in terms of the conversation? What is too much to be talking about? With regards to people's bodies? Bodies or first body parts and then what people do with those body parts. So let's break it into those two sections. And I think also like at what age, right? So if you're examining a five-year-old versus a 10-year-old versus a 15-year-old, do you have certain thresholds about what you will and won't discuss depending on the, you know, the age and development of the kid? I think it's really, really tricky as a pediatrician because you don't always know what the family's expectations are for what they want to be talking about, what they feel comfortable with. I 
And I think parents also like deciding what, what to talk about with their own kids. They don't want to be the only kid on the playground who has, has heard of the idea of porn, you know, when it's like eight year old and, and it's like, yes, we know statistically most kids will see, see porn on a screen before age 10, but like, you don't want to be the one who gets the calls from the other kids' parents in the neighborhood for starting the dialogue necessarily. So, you know, there's no question in a doctor's office that's inappropriate. You can always ask, like, you know, and, you know, people ask about all sorts of interesting things, but you should feel comfortable asking anything to a doctor. It's all fair game. But as far as what the doctor is going to go fishing about, I think that I have to hold myself back a little bit until I know what the family has already covered, especially when I'm like, you know, talking to the parent and the child together. I don't want to be the first one necessarily to start these conversations in the office. It's already like a lot going on, but I do recommend some of the great books as conversation starters that parents can review on their own. And I have some of them in my office. So sometimes when I kick the parents out, I'll be like, why don't you flip through this and see what you think and see like what you, what you guys are ready to discuss. Maybe this is something you're ready for. And I, you know, like, and then they, they, they end up saying, this is a good book for us. Like, I'll take it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just order another copy for my office. But, but that way it gives them like something kind of third party to like look through on their schedule and to think about. And I think parents are often caught off guard by how fast it comes up. And what about for parents in their own home with their kids? I think they're so hungry for advice about what do I broach when and how? And with a giant asterisk depending upon how many kids you have, the birth order, the circumstances, all those other variables. Do you have kind of your own internal timeline of it would be really helpful to have achieved these conversations by this age, knowing your body parts, understanding what sex is, or, you know, um, talking about porn, you know, just some big basic headline topics can you give some guidance to the parents and the adults who are involved in raising tweens and teens and tweens in particular, right? Kids heading into the end of grade school and into middle school, what should they have covered by when? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, I think some of the most important topics can be addressed really early, like, like consent. I think a great time to start that is like with your two-year-old, like about when they don't want to be hugged or when they don't like hitting isn't nice because you don't, you know, you need to treat other people's bodies with respect. And I think often by the time kids are five, you need to start talking about like what's private and what's not. Um, and, And so they have an understanding of like what's appropriate in terms of like taking their underwear and their clothes off at a play date. And, and so those things come up early. And then I think it gets more complicated as you approach more sexually charged topics. But I think that really by age eight, you know, you want to have a child have some understanding of like what the different genders look like and what the different genders body parts are. And, and, you know, how bodies start to change for puberty, because some people's bodies, even if the child is not an early bloomer themselves, some people in class will all of a sudden shoot up six inches or have more body hair and questions might come up. So I I think age eight is a good time to talk about body change. And then I think by age 10, you really have to kind of get to some of the sex talk and some of the porn and those kinds of things. That's what I have in my head. But I think some of my peer families don't feel comfortable quite 
that young. And I think it's okay as long as you have established like an open communication in your home, then you have some trust that like if your child is exposed to these things, maybe they'll come talk to you, even if you haven't had a real talk about it yet. Yeah, I mean, we had a we had an early bloomer episode where we talk about the science of it. And, you know, girls, it's normal, statistically normal for girls as young as seven or eight to have begun puberty. And parents are shocked. They're absolutely shocked and unprepared, which in turn means their kids are shocked or at least unprepared and confused. And so I really appreciate that timeline, Kelly, particularly because in schools, they're often not teaching about puberty and human growth and development until kids are like in fifth grade. And these days you can have 11-year-olds in fifth grade. Um, So I like that both, you know, for your own work as a pediatrician, but also for as a yardstick for, for parents. Right. I mean, we're teaching in schools about what to think about when you're going to get your first period to a class where a third of the girls have already had their period for the first time. It's, it's bananas. It's just the timing is is way off. But I love the way, Kelly, that you say, if some families aren't ready, that's okay. Because the beauty of that statement is really what you're saying to those families is, hey, this is something that you should be talking about. If you're not ready, that's okay. Key underlying notice you should be talking about. Now you've planted the seed and you've let them know, instead of just brushing under the rug, the fact that the conversations need to be covered, you've said the conversations need to be covered. I totally get it. Take your time. But you've planted the seed in really nice fertile soil and you've given the parents permission to think in a different way about the importance of having those conversations. And if there's anything we all know as parents and as healthcare advocates is that you cannot tell people what's right for them all the time, but you sure can introduce what most people are doing that they don't realize at all is going on in most homes. And it's such a relief for some people to hear that actually this is a normal conversation. And my pediatrician says I should be thinking about having it. So I'm really going to think about having it now. So I love that the way you do it and give people permission just to rethink a very antiquated timeline. Can I ask you guys, because I am the person who gets kicked out of the room when the pediatrician is having the conversation with my kids to which I'm no longer invited, which is totally fine. But I don't actually know what happens when I get kicked out of the room. I don't know what gets covered. I don't know what gets brought up. I don't know. So let me just say (laughs) that we're on Zoom right now. And this is the part of the conversation where maybe Kelly and I should kick you out of the Zoom room (laughs) and we can have this conversation (laughs) privately. It's bringing up all my anxiety about being excluded or left out from the party. I I get kicked out of the room too. And I'm a pediatrician, just so you know. But at least you know what they're asking. You don't know what the answer is, but at least you know what they're asking. And what's fascinating is my kids... You know, I'm just like, hey, how'd it go? You know, I, I don't ask any specifics and they certainly don't share with me what happens, which is completely appropriate. But again, I'm still like, come on, somebody tell me like at least like what's what's being covered. So since I have two pediatricians sitting yes. here, I love what? I love kicking parents out. <laughs> 
<laughs> is it, it the best? It's the best. Well, no, you know what it is. I start kicking them out between 10 and 11 and I do it not just to talk about sensitive things, but to establish a relationship with the child and I'll give the child an opportunity to speak for themselves and, and ask any questions that they might. And I really enjoy that connection with the child and watching them kind of like open up. So there's an acronym for the, the stuff that we focus on most during that time. It's HEADS. So we talk about home life. Is everything good at home? Do you, you feel like safe and supported? And who, who do you go to if you have a problem? We talk about school, like, you know, at how um, school's going. Oh, we talk about the different activities they're doing. We talk about their diet, if they have any concerns that they weigh too much or too little, or if they have concerns about their diet and about kind of body image. Then we talk about the more charged topics like sexuality, whether you might be interested in girls or boys and, and whether you've started um, becoming active in those ways. And we talk about depression and suicidality, you know, because you never know unless you ask, like if people aren't, um, are, are having thoughts about, you know, that life's not worth living. And, and I think it's important, especially um, for parents who might be listening, like, I don't know that I want my kid having all these conversations to know that pediatricians are doing it in a developmentally appropriate way. So, you know, some 10 and 11 year olds, I know, you know, we don't get anywhere near into all of that stuff, but we start, you know, we start doing exactly what I mentioned before in terms of like leaving the door open that like there's space there for, um, sometimes it surprises you. Sometimes I can guess which kids are more sexually open or sexually interested. And sometimes I don't know. And, and sometimes the, the information that I gain by just having an open conversation surprises me. But especially at the younger ages, it's more about that relationship and that open, safe space. I'm going to jump on to what you said in the very beginning, which is, this piece about developing your own relationship with the child as the patient. So, you know, as kids get older, bigger kids, bigger problems, right? We all know and live that phrase. We want our children to be able to go to a very small handful of trusted adults if they can't come to us or in addition to coming to us. And one of the people that gets listed on that list of trusted adults is always the pediatrician. Now, how in the world is the pediatrician going to become a trusted adult when every single conversation you've ever had with that person has your parent in the room and your parent may be the translator of the conversation and may not be an accurate translator of that conversation. They mean well, but they may not be getting it right. So in order for kids to put their pediatrician on the trusted adult list, we as parents need to trust the adult that is their pediatrician. And we do need to encourage those individual conversations. My timing is exactly the same as yours, Kelly. Um, I agree a hundred percent that you can never predict who is doing what and who knows what. The only thing that is really predictive is birth order. We do know that kids who have older siblings, no more. They are just educated by their siblings in a different way. And so I might have a nine-year-old who needs a conversation that feels surprisingly mature for a nine-year-old, but that might be the fifth child in a family. And I might have a 13-year-old who that conversation is still, I'm still sort of very carefully skating into that conversation. Parents, adults who raise tweens and teens trust that the pediatrician is not going to leapfrog to a place in the conversation that your child is not ready for. That doesn't help us and it doesn't help them. Kelly, can I ask you as um, our society 
evolves to open the world up and be more inclusive to kids along the gender spectrum and also to the fact to move away from our kind of heteronormative assumptions. What does that conversation in the exam room, you've kicked the parents out, what does it sound like now as opposed to maybe even when you did your training in order to be inclusive of kids' gender identities and kind of sexual preferences so that our listeners have a sense of the kinds of language that they could be using at home to be more inclusive in their in their own families? You know, I haven't made it standard practice to ask people how they view themselves because I feel like that's almost like a test question. And in some ways it puts more pressure on the child to identify in one way or the other or have a label. And so so I, I try to be open to, to children who may have a gender identity that's uh, you know not in one, one side or the other. And I think part of being open is not pushing people to label themselves. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's like necessarily relevant as long as like if they have a positive self-image and they have good support, like I don't, I don't gain much from having them tell me that, you know, they identify as this or that. Maybe that, maybe in the future I'll have to change that practice is if it comes to using appropriate like pronouns in a respectful way, but, but I've been hesitant to, to dig or push in that regard. With regard to having sexual activity and sexual preferences, I, I even even when I was doing my training like 15, 20 years ago, I was like encouraged to do, are you interested in girls, boys, or both? And I think I've over the last few years kind of evolved in my thinking or to add like girls, boys, both are unsure. And and I've had more more children just saying that they're not sure in recent years, which I think, you know, represents probably that they're more open to the idea that it could be either and that, that they might may be undecided, especially like the 12 to 14 year old group. Um, sometimes they're just like, I don't know. And that's okay too. I would imagine that you also probably are getting more of those gray zone answers because you're asking more of the gray zone questions, right? So by giving ourselves permission to not silo kids, we give kids permission to not silo mm-hmm. themselves. It's kind of a beautiful thing for parents to think about because that's it's a very different way of thinking than the mantras of the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? Where people really did fit into buckets. And not to fixate too much on the well visit where I may or may not feel slightly excluded at certain moments, but that's okay. And that's totally healthy and normal. I noticed <laughs> in this recent round of well checkups. And this was for my kids, all ages, 11, 13, 15, and 18, that there was a new kind of segment of the visit where there was a focus while I was in the room around mental health and questions about mental health. And because of the work that I do, I was aware that there were real concerns about depression and anxiety stemming, not just from the pandemic, but in recent years. And I'm curious Kelly, if you could share with our listeners, because I know you've delved deeply into this in your book and in the rest of your work, what are we seeing in terms of mental health in our tweens and teens? What's new or surprising or more concerning than it had been, let's say, two or three years ago? If you could share that, you know, I know there's still research in in process. So um, whatever you feel comfortable sharing would be great. Yes, I I think going through the pandemic uh, is a big deal. For, for everyone, for parents, for kids. 
And I think that having a such a long period of uncertainty, of being unable to predict your schedule, um, of being isolated from your friends and colleagues. You know, I think it's been really hard. I think also that before the pandemic, people maybe underestimated the rates of anxiety and depression in children. You know, we know that only like 20% of children before the pandemic who had anxiety and depression were identified and cared for appropriately. And now like, are anxiety and depression more common? Almost certainly. I would say that it's hard to talk about it in a big audience because you don't want to pathologize coping, right? Because everybody is coping with the stress of the pandemic and the changes of the pandemic. And many people will come through that fine, but we want to catch the people who need more support. And so when I'm talking to families about it, often it's like, of course, this is a challenging time and everybody needs support to make it through. But do you have enough support? Where are you getting your support? What kind of support is, is appropriate? And, and so in terms of the anxiety, the depression, and interestingly, especially in the younger kids, we're seeing a lot of ticks, which I think um, in the youngest kids, we're seeing more like obsessive compulsive behavior and ticks. And that I think is just a different manifestation of the same underlying anxiety. So I talk to parents about how those, you know, mental health a lot in the, in the well visits. And I ask them about how it affects their function and how it affects their sleep and their engagement with their activities and their friends and their schoolwork. And that bit, because I kind of like assume that everybody has something <laughs> and the impairment bit about how it's affecting your day-to-day life is what drives me to think about getting specialists involved, school counselors, um, therapists, psychiatrists, or, or um, you know, doing more work there. And can you get a little granular about younger kids and anxiety and depression? Can you share a few um, flags that you would look for that should drive a parent to pick up the phone and call you call their pediatrician, which I, I just want to emphasize that as the first call. Parents sometimes want to just immediately subspecialize, but really having your pediatrician as the gatekeeper becomes a very important piece of the relationship. But what are some of the things that if a child does or says, a younger child does or says are flags? I think children often show us uh, that they're struggling rather than tell us with their words. So if they're having, uh, you know, temper tantrums or meltdowns, often that can be a sign um, that, you know, they might be getting angry or just being behaviorally difficult for the parents to manage. And that might be like how they're showing you that they're off and that they need more support. Sometimes we'll see children with sleep problems or with appetite changes or um, kind of withdrawal from the things that they normally gain pleasure from. So those are those are probably the most common things that I see come up really with younger children and even with, with older children that those kind of flags come up. And, and part of the reason it's so important to get a pediatrician or, or a counselor or somebody involved is because as a parent, you know, you, you don't always get the full story and giving the neutral third party to provide support. I can't tell you how many times children have opened up to me about feeling way worse than they've let on to their parents because they want to protect their parents. You know, they don't want to worry their parents. They don't want to upset their parents. So having somebody that's not you, even if it's, you know, not a mental health professional necessarily get involved can help you learn more information about how your child's feeling. And it's very possible. I think sometimes people shy away from calling because they're like, 
I don't want to medicalize. I don't want a medicine to help this, but that, that is not the first thing on my mind when I'm evaluating a child. I'm like, just let's learn more about what's happening before you even go there. And then there's so much that can be done. That's not necessarily requiring a diagnosis or a medication. Right. To your point, there are parents who are worried about over pathologizing and they might not want to reach out. And there are parents who are worried about under pathologizing. Right. So it, there's a whole spectrum and, and we're, we're all coming to it with our own baggage as well. The, the, the parent lens is not always crystal clear. Kelly, can I just ask when you have a parent who comes to you and is seeing this behavior, which is as a, as a parent or a caregiver is scary, is frustrating, is challenging, is upsetting. I'm wondering what's some like scripting or language or tactics you give the adults to use while you all in partnership try to figure out how to help this kid or what's going on. Like what are kind of your, what's your go-to language? Because I would imagine whatever you use could be applied in other scenarios, not just with a three-year-old with a tantrum or a seven-year-old with an outburst, but also kids of, of all ages. I think parents, um, myself included, put a lot of pressure on themselves to say the right things or know the right things or or to solve the problems that come up on their own. And sometimes I think it's helpful as an kind of outsider to the family to remind the parents that it's not always them. You know, I, I think parents of multiple children see this, see this just in their own families that some children will have a tendency to require more support around their behavior, or they might have more meltdowns, or they might be more sensitive, or they might be more rigid. And it's not always a reflection on your parenting. It's not always something you could do differently. So I try to normalize it because I feel like parents have a lot of guilt when their child is struggling and it's not accurate. You know, there's, there's your child's independent genes and environment outside of your control and there's biochemistry at work and and you know there's hormones and it's it's not always because of the home life you've created or the dynamic in your family and sometimes like saying the right thing or watching the right instagram video with some specialist is not going to like solve your problem like that so it helps parents i think to know that that they didn't do anything wrong if they get to the level where they need more support I think it's really important that parents know that. So let's pull it out of the office and take it into the home. And I think we can ask this question about mental health. We can ask the exact same question about body changes. Should conversations look and feel different at home than they do in your office? And how might they? And and how can parents sort of practice those conversations, get better at those conversations? I think the biggest challenge for parents in these conversations is that you often aren't in control as much as you would like. I think parents think about having talks about body image and puberty and sex in these like, like structured ways of like, we're going to sit down for an hour and then we'll be done. And, and that's just not how I don't think it goes in practice. Uh, I think mostly it, it will be like when you're your son is, you know, walking by the bathroom with his little sister and he talks about how like, oh, his penis got hard for the first time. And he's like, you know, it's like it comes out of nowhere and you might not know what to say in the moment. And I think it's these conversations end up being a hundred tiny conversations rather than one big conversation. And we call that grabbing the teachable moment. (laughs) 
Yes. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's really, and I think people will be very relieved to know that that type of thing happens in your home too, you know, where there are these teachable moments. Yes. I think um, a friend of my family that the 11 year old was, you know, in the back seat on the way home from school with the grandma and he had had to talk about sex in his class that day. And so he asked the grandma in front of his like four and six year old brothers, like, oh, so how's your sex life with with Papa? Like, and, and the grandma was just like, uh, uh, it's, it's lovely. Like, we have a really like wonderful marriage. And she was kind a of like, for oh. grandma. That's amazing. <laughs> Kelly, the way we end our podcast is that we each share a pearl, a tip. They're all these puberty-ish sounding words that we're trying to get away from. A practical takeaway. Maybe it's a takeaway from our conversation. Maybe it's something that pops into your head at the end that you say, oh, I wish we had gone here. And each of us, pulls one so that for parents who just want a bullet pointed refresher list of what we think is the most valuable piece from today's conversation, here you go. So you could start if you want, or you could pass to us to start if you want, and we're happy to do it either way. Why don't you go ahead? Show me how it's done. Vanessa, go. My takeaway, my practical puberty takeaway from today is, Kelly, your advice to think about who our kids are and what their nature is and what the influences are on them and that their reactions to those things aren't because we've screwed up or even if we have messed up, it's not the end of the world and really that we're parenting the kids we have and accepting who they are and making the best choices we can in reaction to that as opposed to blaming ourselves when our kids don't behave or don't respond in ways that are quote unquote, you know, perfect or what we might have imagined them to be. And I think that's a great reminder as kids get older and life gets more complicated and reactions get much, much more complex. I think it's a great reminder for all of us to keep in our heads. Mine is just shining a bright light on a comment you made about parents who don't want to either bother their doctor or over-pathologize their kids as reasons why they don't reach out. And parents and people who take care of these tweens and teens, you heard from someone who takes care of kids in the office every day that it's not a bother and they're not over-pathologizing. And so I hope people hear what you and frankly, every one of your colleagues is my guess and me too have to say, which is, reach out to us, use us, ask us. Um, Google does not need to replace us, nor does it really do a particularly good job. And so don't be an apologist for asking a question of your pediatrician. I guess the only other takeaway we talked about this a little bit would be that information from you as the parent, even if it's, you know, a little clumsy or awkward or piecemeal like is going to be better information than what your kids will get elsewhere. So I think that even if the conversations, the hundred little conversations are difficult uh, to have confidence in the fact that by learning together with your child, how to navigate them, um, you're doing your child a lot of good and being like an important resource for them. So a hundred tiny little conversations, and hopefully that helps take the pressure off all of us as we embark on this. 
Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. We loved having you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, not just today, but out in the world with your Instagram account and your books. And we're lucky to have your wisdom and your generosity. Thank you so so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun chatting with you guys. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.